Seeing by Moonlight, a novel by M. F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle, read by Thomas Viborg Thune. This is M. F. Thomas, author of the novel Seeing by Moonlight. If you're enjoying this audio version, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. Twins. Thursday, December 4th, 1941. Von Braun's fingers flew up and down the keys of the grand piano, making flurries of semi-quavers with peerless exactitude. His fingers could work like machines, little miracle pistons that followed every dynamic instruction. Victor was transfixed by them, although too often this would lead to an exasperated rebuke from the pianist, and Victor would return his eyes to the pages of music on the stand. When uh, Victor had first joined the rocketry program, he had been, much like in his college studies, not too visible. His fellow apprentices were eager for attention, eager to see themselves serving the fantastical visions of von Braun, passed along to inspire them. His dreams, and Oberth's dreams, what became all their dreams. Victor's own dreams seemed far away and silly, buried under very grown-up and serious problems that overwhelmed him daily. He strained and labored with fuel mixtures and compression ratios. It was challenging, more intense than he ever imagined. Cloistered as they were, they didn't hear much about the war, except for the grand and unchanging narrative of Germany returning to greatness, Germany repelling her enemies. Victory had the daily affirmation that he was helping this cause. It was a daily practicality of how it all felt that nagged at him. He wondered how he could be missing out on the ecstasy that moved the others. After the program moved to Penemunde, these feelings had heightened. They were far from the front, and the Allies, as far as Germany's intelligence bureau believed, did not yet know where they were, nor how quickly their work had advanced. The truth was, this work dated back to the early thirties, and used theoretical designs by Oberth that some of Germany's brightest minds were still playing catch-up with. Compared with his genius, they were like primitives, asked to make a bicycle when they were still testing out the wheel. And so they were shut further away from their old families, from all the fighting, their whole world defined by their private, noble, glorious struggle against physics and gravity. Victor never lacked for work, but fulfillment, meaning, he sensed a lack of this. One day von Braun had appeared at his work table in his faraway office. Since von Braun had officially joined the SS, he usually wore the uniform on his rounds. The sight of it could make anyone nervous. Today he wore a plain suit. But he still spoke with concise authority. Your file says you studied music. These were the first words Von Braun had spoken to him since Victor had volunteered for the program. Lips quivering uselessly, Victor nodded. Von Braun spun around on his heel. 
Come with me. One of the many indulgences afforded von Braun was the grand piano and a small recital room. He sometimes entertained the team with brilliant Bach performances done completely from memory. But, he explained, he wished to practice other work, for which he required a page-turner who could read music. Victor had no musical gifts. His exposure to it was because his parents insisted he have a comprehensive education. Little bits of it all. This expression had triggered a great frustration in him during college. He believed it had set him behind many of his peers who had been allowed to indulge completely in their disciplines. It was only in the midst of a long lyrical passage that von Braun revealed his true purpose. I have been reviewing your work, Herr Zweig. The voice seemed utterly disconnected from the fingers, churning through the arpeggios. I am honored, Herr von Braun. Please, Victor, do not feel constrained to protocol here. The party is not watching to measure your obedience. Do you want to know what I have noticed about your modification proposals? Unsure how to respond without protocol, Victor remained silent. Von Braun cleared his throat, his fingers hovering over the keys with no music to produce. Victor nervously flipped the score page and Von Braun continued. You turn in the fewest proposals. I'm sorry, I have always been slower than my colleagues. Do not apologize. This is just one half of my observation. You turn in the fewest proposals and they explode the least. Pardon? I have many ambitious scientists here. They wish to make the next great discovery, find the magic formula that will take us higher in the atmosphere, carry heavier payload. Your priority seems to be that the rocket not explode upon liftoff. That has been invaluable to us all. Thank you, Herr von Braun. We have the benefit of many resources here, and for now we can test our rockets unmolested. But this has made some of your colleagues too cavalier. They are in a rush to be the first on the test range and care nothing when their experiments fail. Victor felt an immense satisfaction, no matter how often he had tried to will himself to forge boldly ahead like the others, he had been unable to shake his plodding practical approach. He had come to see it as his worst attribute, and now here was the most brilliant scientist alive, well, next to Oberth, calling it a virtue. Herr Zweig, I need a few men like you for a special project. Victor's heart pounded and he felt the page of music trembling between his fingers. For this project you will have few, if any, opportunities to test. You will be doing something more difficult than anyone in Penimunde, and to make it harder still you will have to get it right on paper first, because it is not an acknowledged part of the research program. What we are talking about is a breakthrough that is not for the next month's campaign, but for all of humanity, for all of time. 
It was not uncommon to hear a German in the time of the Nazis speak with such a broad sense of posterity, but from von Braun it carried an aura of truth, studied, calculated and expressed without bias. It would be history not due to his ego, but the coldest and irreducible measure of the facts. And this was when Victor started work on the America rocket. The A4B project had been officially suspended, but prior to this, the trick of labeling it as a cousin to the very promising A4 rocket, which was on track to be tested for the first time in March, had attracted a great deal of special funding to Penemunde. This, as well as some other more mysterious of the book's resources, provided the resources for the America rocket project. The group worked in a separate complex, hidden off an underground rail tunnel. It was an odd group, to Victor's eyes. Scientists were in the minority. There were other volunteers, all of them fit and proud Aryans, who seemed to engage in endless calisthenics and meditations and self-perfecting rituals. When Victor asked who they were, he was told they were pilots. Pilots? Obert's visions, as expressed in these classified designs, astonished Victor every day and haunted him every night as he pondered the enormity of the puzzle ahead of him. The addition of a human pilot had emerged as an inevitable piece of that puzzle. The higher the rocket travelled, the further from its target at launch, the more the weapon required guidance beyond anything that could be done with gyroscopes and radios. But that was not the real dilemma. In fact, determining how to keep a pilot alive inside the rocket was not even part of Victor's duties. The daunting, no damned impossible thing about the America rocket was that it was to be a multi-stage rocket not a rocket on top of a booster that was already proceeding nicely at the main compound. This was a rocket on a booster, on a bigger booster, on an even bigger booster. All four stages of this supermissile, none of which yet existed as anything but drawings in theory, had to work in concert, all on paper, because they might only get to build one in full. When Victor first glimpsed the force demands of the entire package, the realization had staggered him. This, uh, this device will leave the atmosphere. You wanted to go into space. And one of the twins, Victor could never keep them straight and feared to ask, replied, It is a spear that can pierce the heavens, and you will make it. The twins. They were about von Braun's age, perhaps late twenties or early thirties, not much older than Victor, and yet, like von Braun, they seemed touched by something greater than age. It wasn't fervor or doctrine, Victor didn't know how to describe it, but he felt himself shrink from their appraisal of him, the way he shrank from von Braun's genius. Their names were Philibert, and Gerfried Lohr, 
and they ran the America Rocket Program. It was during these piano sessions that Victor made his reports to Von Braun, who was rarely able to visit the America Rocket Complex due to his other duties. They always spoke quietly and casually, as if remarking on the weather while Von Braun played. Today, though, Von Braun seemed frustrated and did not want to hear about the lack of progress. They were practicing Chopin, a complex etude. Victor knew that von Braun was from a region of Poland that had become part of Germany, but he never played the Polish master in public. They reached the end of the piece, and for all Victor's ears could tell, the player had not missed a note. Still, von Braun glared at the music as if silently arguing with it. It is petulant, he finally exclaimed. There is no rigor, no balance. What is there here to admire? Pa! And with a shockingly out-of-character gesture, he seized the music in his hands, crumpling it, and dropped it to the floor. Then, in a quieter voice, his gaze now locked on the piano keys, sentiment, sentiment shall be the death of us all. Victor did not understand and simply waited. At last von Braun smoothed back his hair, wiped his palms on his trousers and collected himself. You must take a message to the twins. Their Führer insists on a demonstration. What? But we are not even near construction phase. It would take months. Erzweig, the demonstration is not of your rocket. Please, take the message. I will be there next week. These arms, Gerfried boasted, I could carry three trunks with these arms. In a day I could bring a young lady enough wood to warm her a whole winter through. But only after my arms had chopped that wood, Philibert countered. Victor was accustomed to the strange contests between the twins, which didn't restrict itself to words. Sometimes, he could swear, they were challenging each other just by looking at each other and delighting in the struggle. Victor waited patiently until finally Gerfried asked, Why have you come, Herr Zweig? A message from Herr von Braun. Their Führer insists on a demonstration. Herr von Braun will be here next week. The twins' faces turned grim. They leaned into each other and exchanged a few muttered words. Then Philibert picked up a phone on the desk and dialed. Bring in Herr Rausch. Victor asked, Will that be all? Again the twins muttered to each other, and there seemed to be a rare disagreement. They took each other's hands, like an aggressive handshake, and tugged hard against each other, a brief test of strength Victor had witnessed before. This time it was Philibert who won. Satisfied, he turned to Victor. You should stay, Herzweig. The more you know about the project, the better assistance you can be. A man entered their office, obviously Rausch. He was young and fit like all of them, and had a hawk-like face. With an aloof slowness, he swept his arms out in a sieg heil. Instinctively, the others responded in kind. Philibert spoke. Herr Rausch, 
you have the chance to prove your abilities before the highest authority. This will happen in one week. If Victor could guess Rausch's mood, it would be one of terror. The man kept his composure only with great effort, and the pall that had cloaked him was undeniable. Victor couldn't help wonder, what could give this pilot such fear? There was no rocket for him to fly. Rausch swallowed and saluted. When am I to report to the doctors? Philibert continued. Eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Rausch gave a crisp nod and turned to leave. Only now his slow speed spoke not of confident aloofness, but grievous dread. Enjoy your supper, Philibert said to Rausch's back, and the fit, confident paragon of Aryan qualities seemed reduced in the seconds of the meeting to a morning spectre as he walked out. Victor turned back to the twins, who looked grave and seemed uninterested in explaining anything. Friday, December 12th, 1941 It was early in the day, the sun just over an hour up, but Victor and the rest of the team had been awake most of the night. This was the most to-do their little complex had ever seen. They were in a room Victor rarely visited, a circular space more like a surgical theatre than anything technical. There were many high-ranking guests, some obviously government or SS, others simply formidable men from who knew where. Von Braun was among them, never straying far from a telephone. All week, Victor had been troubled by the meeting with the twins, and strangely concerned about Harausch, whom he had never known before and had not seen since. No one had explained to him what they were about to see, but from the cameras and special phone lines and technicians, it was clear that whatever was about to happen was to be recorded and communicated to Berlin. Only yesterday, Germany had declared war on the United States in the wake of the successful assault by Japan in the Pacific. The fact that their Führer would devote time to witnessing this test, whatever it might be, spoke volumes of the interest he was taking in it. At last the main door opened, and, flanked by two doctors, and dressed in a crisp and perfect uniform, Herr Rausch entered and took weak steps to the center of the room. Victor was driven to his feet at the sight. Rausch's healthy, hawk-like face was ravaged. A mass of raw red flesh and scar tissue occupied the place where his nose once sat. Victor felt revulsion and then a deepening horror as he remembered the conversation. Report to the doctors. Whatever they had done to him, he had accepted voluntarily. Philibert and Gerfried approached Rausch. Philibert had a heavy glove, a kind of metal gauntlet, on one hand and he stood alongside Rausch, taking his hand in that gauntlet. Gerfried stood in front of Rausch, meeting his eyes. Are you prepared, Herr Rausch? Rausch didn't speak, but gave a wobbling Sieg Heil with his free hand. Gerfried turned to the technicians. Is Berlin connected? Von Braun 
heir to the phone, nodded. Garfried picked up a small chalkboard and turned back to Rausch, and his look and tone became much more soothing. To Victor's surprise, he felt a strange warmth spread throughout the room despite the grotesque spectacle. It was something Gerfried seemed able to turn on at will. Now, Herr Rausch, as we discussed, Berlin is going to wire a message to the tape over there. I want you to close your eyes. When you can see it, write it on the chalkboard here. Understand? Rausch nodded and closed his eyes. His fingers gripped tight around Philibert's glove. From the corner came the quiet chatter of a ticker tape spool. What was this? To Victor it looked like old stage magic, an amusement hall trick. Someone would give Rausch some subtle signal and he would write out some short phrase to polite applause. But then a blindfold was applied to his eyes and cotton stuffed in his ears, which made the trick much more difficult to divine. Somehow, Victor found himself perversely caught up in the spirit of the moment, hoping to see the deformed Rausch succeed. Rausch's free hands twitched, and a puzzled expression twisted his face. He looked like a small child, thinking very hard. Finally, he raised his hand and waved for Gerfried. Gerfried came over with a chalkboard and placed the chalk in Rausch's hand. Rausch began to scribble. Each time he finished a sentence, Gerfried would lift the chalkboard for all to see and recite the sentence on it with booming pride. What is German and true, none would know, if it did not live in the honor of German masters. Therefore, I say to you, honor your German masters, then you will conjure up good spirits, and if you favor their endeavors, even if the Holy Roman Empire should dissolve in mist, for us there would yet remain Holy German art. That pronouncement echoed into silence. The operators of the ticker tape machine looked stunned and nodded. And then the room burst into applause. Rausch slumped where he stood, and Philibert caught him. A voice called for brandy. Someone placed a stool behind Rausch, and he sat gratefully as the blindfold and cotton were removed. Victor watched him keenly, wondering with a quietly growing distress why the man had not yet spoken a word. But what a trick! What Victor couldn't reconcile was if it were merely a trick, why would Berlin be interested? And if it wasn't a trick? This was far beyond Victor's ability to contemplate. What did it mean to see without eyes? How could such a power exist? How had they learned of it? Victor started to consider the implications of the manned rockets sketched in piles back in his office, and felt a cold awe. Von Braun called Gerfried over to the phone. Something upsetting must have come over the line, because Gerfried became immediately agitated, protesting and arguing until he suddenly fell quiet. 
cowed and afraid, he obediently muttered, Yes, mein Führer, immediately, mein Führer. He turned back to Rausch, still seated and recovering from his effort. Herr Rausch, he called, rousing the man to his feet. The Führer has given you a great task that will let you use your gift to serve the fatherland in its glorious struggle. You are, Gerfried choked on the words, you are to see into the White House in America. This was absurd, impossible. But there was no laughter in the room beyond Victor's own quickly stifled reaction of disbelief. Did they honestly believe Rausch could do this? Seeing across a room, as Victor was still struggling to accept Rausch had done, had left him in this fainting spell. Just by what example to try to cross an ocean would... would kill him. And suddenly Victor knew, from Rausch's silent acceptance, that this was exactly what was about to happen. You can't do this, Victor blurted helplessly. Von Braun barked at him. Zweig, leave the room. We cannot have outbursts. And with that, two guards stepped forward, and Victor meekly, obediently, joined them. The last thing he saw in the room was Rausch, who at first looked pathetically resigned, but, seeing Victor's concern, stuck out his jaw with defiant duty. He thrust out his arm in a Sieg Heil and opened his mouth, as if to shout, Heil Hitler! But Rausch had no tongue. They had cut out his tongue. The door slammed shut on Victor. Purchase a copy of Seeing by Moonlight? Visit Amazon or any online bookstore. Seeing by Moonlight, a novel by M. F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle, read by Thomas Vyborg Thune.